You're listening to Key Matters from Kappa Kappa Gamma with generous support from the Kappa Kappa Gamma Foundation. I'm Kylie Smith, the Archivist and Museum Director, and my co-host is Dr. Mary Osborne, the Director of the Stewart House Museum. Thank you for joining us as we travel through the Key Magazine from 1882 to today. We are discussing the Key Magazine for the years 1895 and 1896. So uh, a little context for 1896, Utah was admitted as the 45th state. The X-ray machine was exhibited for the first time. Puccini's opera, La Boheme, premiered in Turin, Italy. And the first study of the sensitivity of global climate to atmospheric carbon dioxide is published. So funny that we are still talking about how the atmosphere and the earth is impacted by carbon dioxide. The first modern Olympic Games were held in Greece and Ford developed his first vehicle ever, the Ford Quadricycle. So we probably could have included that in our bicycle and transportation episode of Historically Speaking, but we didn't. Victoria is still queen in England and she has now surpassed her grandfather, King George III, as the longest reigning monarch. And of course now Liz II has her beat in that record. Wallace Simpson, the American-born Duchess of Windsor, was born in 1896, and notable deaths include that of Clara Schumann, the German composer and pianist, as well as Harriet Beecher Stowe. She was the author of Uncle Tom's Cabin. So you gave me volume 13 for this episode, and was that on purpose? Because I do actually like volume 13. Sure. And I'm that you gave me <laughs> so it's really, it's really because I wanted to talk about that poem. <laughs> 18, 221B. Okay, so you didn't purposely give me lucky number 13. I actually do like the number 13. It's my favorite and least effective president, Millard Fillmore. He was number 13. And just because everyone thinks it's unlucky, I think I probably decided that it was one of my favorite numbers, just to be contrary. My issue started with the January 1896 issue, and it's still published by Psy Chapter at Cornell. Mary J. Hall is the editor. And just to note, it's 1896, and she only initiated in 1891. Our records show that she graduated in 1893. So two years out of school, and she's editing the entire magazine. (laughs) Talk about an overachiever. So the issues now start with ads. They're no longer just in the back of the book like they they were in previous years. D.L. Alt in Columbus, Ohio is selling badges, which is interesting because they would eventually merge with Burr and Patterson to become our longtime jeweler, Burr, Patterson, and Ald. So people today still look for Burr, Patterson, and Ald or Burr Pat badges as they were nicknamed. Also, R.A. Heggie and Brothers, who are selling badges in Ithaca near Cornell, are advertising in the magazine as well. I also noticed that they start putting the terms of subscribing to the key in the front of the magazine. $1 for the year, $0.25 for a single copy, and a sample copy was free. So I wonder how often poor Mary Hall had to answer questions and requests for their free issue, um, their free sample issue of the magazine. So now to the good stuff. Guess who writes the opening essay in the January 1896 issue titled Music as a Profession for Women? Can you guess who? Is it Sue Walker? None other than 
Flo from Slow, Florence from St. Lawrence, Florence Lee Whitman, our favorite from the class of 82 at Beta Beta Chapter, St. Lawrence University in Canton, New York. Well, she's very talented because that's not what she teaches. <laughs> not. <laughs> Florence begins by noting how women are very well suited and have proven themselves especially talented in the field of music with one notable exception, musical composition. Women as the originator or composer of music is far less common, and she pleads with her Kappa sisters to correct that notion. She makes all the arguments that we still hear today. It has nothing to do with ability, but the lack of education to develop it. In fact, I recently heard a news story that talked about blind auditions and how they remarkably increased the number of women musicians hired by orchestras. And so I wonder if Florence from St. Lawrence were alive today, would she be impressed by the number of women songwriters and musicians? I, I think so, but she probably would also argue that we could do more to, to promote women in that field. I kind of wondered if she'd be writing fan letters to Dolly Parton or maybe Beyonce. I know musical pop culture isn't your thing. No, I've, I've heard of both of them. <laughs> The next editorial is about sorority magazines. They basically talk about how they're all the same, much to the chagrin. Um, and the essay ends with, they're all good. They might be better. There may sometime be an ideal magazine, but now and for many years to come, such a blessing must be looked upon as a literary Mrs. Harris. There ain't no such thing. I had no idea who a literary Mrs. Harris would be. And it's from Dickens' novel, Martin Chuzzlewit. If you have read Chuzzlewit, then you'll know that Mrs. Harris is a figment of the imagination of one of the characters in Chuzzlewit. I guess we shouldn't hold our breath for an ideal sorority magazine, though I think our own fits that bill on most occasions. The report of the Alpha Province Convention is included, and I looked back in the fall 1977 issue of the magazine that was a history issue, and it lists all of the province conventions. Because we saw another mention of the Alpha Province Convention. The first was actually held at Hillsdale and hosted by Kappa Chapter and Z Chapter in 1885. So they're not brand new in 1896. There was another at Hillsdale in 1886, then at Syracuse in 1891. And then in 1895, there were three province conventions, which we later called province meetings. And now they have changed them to Kappa leadership conferences. They're held in the off year outside of the, the general convention. So there in 1895, they had Alpha, Beta, and Gamma. Alpha was held in Canton, hosted by Beta Beta chapter. Uh, Beta was held in Adrian, Michigan, hosted by the um, Z chapter at Adrian College, and then Gamma was held at Madison, Wisconsin, hosted by the Ada chapter there. Um, the editor, Mary J. Hull, was also elected the chairman of the Alpha Province Convention in 1895, so I'm guessing that's why there's only a report from Alpha. I checked elsewhere, and there weren't any other reports from Beta or Gamma. The topics covered will sound familiar to listeners who have been following along with the show, membership selection, the relationship of chapters to their colleges, the relations of chapters to one another. They also discussed initiation rights, whether the fraternity should take up outside work, which will be a moot point during the progressive era when Kappa's leaders led so many efforts in, quote, outside work, especially settlement work. 
There were several essays that are written by alumni, and they are clearly directed to undergraduates. We see titles like Usefulness and To the Undergraduate and An Answer, which answers the question, when a girl joins Kappa Kappa Gamma, does she join the chapter or the fraternity? These questions were posed and answered by a group that is still trying to clearly figure out how it is that they have been and want to continue to grow. Lest we forget, in the 1880s alone, Kappa installed 18 new chapters and closed six. Then in the 1890s, it's like they put the brakes on. They installed just six chapters and closed just one. So there definitely is this sense of pulling back on that massive growth from the 1880s, at least a little bit. In the personal section that details where people are studying, who's been married, and who has changed jobs, it was interesting to see that Kate Sharp, while grand president, was elected to the Council of the American Library Association. So they were very busy working both for Kappa and then also in their own professions in a lot of cases. In the Parthenon, I can only imagine the rolled eyes of the chapter members who read the piece that suggests when rushing and initiation no longer engrossed their attention, Perhaps they might devote a meeting or two to the study of the fraternity constitution or the bylaws of their own chapter. <laughs> Another bit talks about a chapter who became acquainted with an alumna and how she considered purchasing a new and modern membership pin because hers was old fashioned and somewhat odd when compared with some of the new ones. In the end, she decided to keep it out of sentiment. And of course, today, people scramble for those older and somewhat odd pins when they appear for sale on the internet. Oh, and hey, you know how we just published our Historically Speaking episode on the Hearthstone, and you mentioned one of the chapters that talked about having sort of a, a summer clubhouse. Well, in 1896, Yoda chapter at DePauw is so enamored with their chapter house that they suggest a Kappa summer cottage where Kappas from all chapters might meet and while they enjoy the rest and recreation of a summer outing, become acquainted with one another. They go on to argue how this needs to be cared for financially and planned out very thoughtfully. And then that's it. They offer no other suggestions of how to get this done. So it reminds me of all of those folks who have big grand ideas, but they want someone else to work it out. And then in the chapter letters, Barnard is suggesting that other chapters, and they're hoping that other chapters would take up outside work with either college settlements or in the absence of such organized settlements, at least consider helping poor children. And I love this notion of philanthropy and community service. And then the issue closes with a mention of, of a possible forthcoming songbook from Barnard, and they write how the fraternity is so sorely in need of a new songbook. They talk about how all copies that were published by Kai several years ago are impossible to come by, and even our newest members haven't seen a copy long enough to learn the songs. Even in the exchanges, they publish several songs from other fraternities, so clearly everyone was singing in 1896. So on to April. Remember how in the 1870s and 1880s, the woman question was on everyone's mind. Should she be educated? Should she be educated alongside men? Well, in 1896, they recognize that these questions are largely answered. And they note that the chance of a college education is given to almost every woman who desires it. Note every white woman with some sort of means for the most part. Well, now the question is, what becomes of these women after they graduate? Do they marry? Do they teach? What are they doing to fulfill their promises, which they made to the world and which have been made in their names? No pressure, ladies. You've worked hard to get here, but what are you going to do to make it worthwhile? 
Um, it's actually a really interesting article that sums up a lot of statistical research of the day. How many women do marry? How many pursue graduate and postgraduate studies? What courses they take up and so on. So as you mentioned, we're kind of wrapping up these conversations, not wrapping up, but um, we're not focusing as heavily on the conversations of what professions women might, might enter. And then they're discussing the advantages and disadvantages of chapter house life. And if only they could see into the future and know that in 50 years, when men begin returning to campuses after serving in World War II, chapter houses will be incredibly encouraged by campuses because of the ways in which they ease housing shortages on campuses. That's when it's fun to read back on these old issues, knowing sort of what's to come. I was interested in Beta Beta's article on honorary members and special students. They are speaking against the practice and note that, quote, when from our own members the honors come, we will hail them with joy and pride. But to try and graft them on by election is about as effective as the proceedings of the Roman soldiers who, by a large majority, voted their asses to be horses donkeys to be horses. So there go any potential honorary members invited by the women at St. Lawrence. They don't want us to invite people who are already famous without having that experience of being a Kappa. And then there are some additional interesting statistics presented in this issue. These are statistics about Kappa. In 1896, there were 26 active chapters, one associate chapter, which was essentially an alumna chapter. So we know alums were involved elsewhere and in other ways, but we only had one that was known as an associate chapter. Beta taught at Syracuse was the largest with 29 members and Theta at Missouri and Gamma Rho at Allegheny were tied for being what they called the most exclusive with 11 members. The average number of initiates was between five and six for each chapter. And then interestingly, Beta knew at Ohio State only had members from the local area. No one was from outside of that Columbus, Ohio region. And then at Swarthmore in Pennsylvania, they had no members from the town in which the school is located. So everyone was from out of town. In the personals, ah, this is my research unicorn. Not really, because I wasn't looking for it but I love discovering these things. And I really wanted to tell you about it, but I wanted to save the surprise for this episode. In the personals of the April 1896 issue, there's a very simple notice from Beta Beta at St. Lawrence. And they write, in December, Eleanor White, 95, was married to Robert Frost of Lawrence, Mass. I had never heard that Robert Frost, the famous poet, was married to a Kappa. So when I cross-referenced it, Wikipedia noted that he sold his first poem in 1894 titled My Butterfly, an Elegy, for $15 to the New York Independent, which is about $443 in today's money. He was so proud of that that he proposed marriage to Eleanor Miriam White, but she, quote, demurred, wanting to finish college at St. Lawrence before they married. Talk about a modern woman. I love that so much. So after she graduated in the spring of 1895, he proposed again, and they were married in December of 1895. They had six children, and sadly, she developed breast cancer in 1937 and then passed away in 1938. So we'll have to remember when we get to those issues, she'll probably appear in the in memoriam. And on a personal note, the Frosts are buried in an old Vermont cemetery where a number of my own ancestors are buried. So I'm famous adjacently, basically. <laughs> 
Towards the end of the Parthenon, Theta chapter at the University of Missouri has begun hinting that a national convention in Columbia, Missouri might be a good idea because of its central location. Again, we know the future. They will eventually have their convention there or near there. There's more discussion about physical education in the chapter letters. Cornell particularly writes of a visitor from Wellesley who spoke on the general subject of outdoor sports and such good habits of exercise, sleep, and sensible dress. And they write that her enthusiasm aroused great interest among the Cornell women in spite of her condemnation of midnight spreads, fudges, and late hours. <laughs> on those, they essentially agreed to disagree. So Oz, let me know when you're planning the next midnight spread or fudge at Stewart House. Okay, I'll make sure that we have handballs. <laughs> Yum. Uh, Beta Beta's letter from St. Lawrence in the far northern reaches of New York talk about temperatures <laughs> reaching below 40 degrees. So I'm sorry, 40 degrees below zero. And they also talk about sidewalks with walls of snow higher than eight feet Yet, those chapter members still make it to chapter meetings. So anyone complaining about weather and if classes are canceled, you better get over it unless you want to talk to the gals at St. Lawrence up there in Canton, New York. Beta Ta from Syracuse welcomes a new chapter of Pi Beta Phi on their campus, which will be of interest to our friend Fran Beck. She is the archivist for Pi Beta Phi and an alumna of the Pi Beta Phi chapter at Syracuse. And then you said you don't really like basketball, but Epsilon chapter at Illinois Wesleyan University asked if any other Kappas play basketball as they have a team that plays twice a week and they'd like to challenge other Kappas to a game. They also mentioned the forming of a KKG club, which is another forerunner to an alumna association. They say that this group that has been formed is literary as well as social and that undergrads are encouraged to visit the club meetings and the club members are welcome to visit chapter meetings. Beta Eta chapter at Stanford writes of their invitation to the Thetas and Pi Phi's on campus to form a larger group called the Panhellenic. And they even included women who were members of other groups that were not represented on campus. So I love that that is so forward thinking because you and you and uh, Fran Beck had talked about the 1891 meeting that was called in Boston. So five years later, undergrads are, are taking up the mantle and doing some of that work themselves. And now I've noticed, maybe you did too, I've noticed in the last few in memoriam sections that the notices vary quite a bit. It was popular for a time for chapters to submit the notice of a member's passing in the form of resolutions. They resolve that in her death, whoever it is, that they have lost an untiring and devoted sister. They resolve that they extend their deepest sympathy to her family. And then they resolve that a copy of the resolutions be sent to the family and to the key. So some others are, are more traditional notices, but I thought that the resolutions were interesting and they show the evolution, I think, in leadership and parliamentary procedures. These chapters really are learning and embracing. So they may not be studying the constitution or the bylaws as that one member suggested, but they're even sending in these, these pieces to the magazine as a formal resolution. So that was interesting. The closing editorial, um, several of them discuss Oxford's decision to not confer degrees upon women students in England. So this was a big topic of discussion for several issues. 
And they talk about how they can't believe they made that decision, despite so many other universities in Europe doing so. And the discussion of philanthropy for the larger fraternity arises again. And it's interesting to me that Kappa debates this so much more than our peer groups, at least it seems, who very often had a philanthropic partner for many, many years. Kappa's has changed through the years based on the needs of our communities. And then the exchanges aren't anything too riveting, but I did notice that there were several discussions about city chapters and country chapters. And still today we find ourselves talking about city campuses and country campuses and then their corresponding chapters. And of course, the favorability of both are argued depending on who it is you're speaking to. So now on to the July issue where the situations on various other campuses are discussed, Oxford, Cambridge, Vassar, the University of Minnesota. So the question of women given admission to degrees is still a hot topic and comparison is drawn between life for women students at Minnesota and Vassar. And then later in the Parthenon, the second degree discussion comes up. That sorority within a sorority where members of Kappa pledge themselves to learning more about the fraternity's history and they take an examination for it. So I don't know if you have seen the little golden fleur-de-lis that had like a ruby or a garnet chip in the center. We only have a few examples of them. That's what was given if you earned the second degree in Kappa. It hasn't existed for very long at this point, but people are already pointing out that it's unfair to make the opportunity available only to those who can attend convention when the examination is given. So they're discussing why wouldn't you offer it annually at different places or send it out to people in the chapters, whatever, um, because we want anyone who wants to learn more about the fraternity to be able to do so and be admitted to this exclusive group. And then this was my favorite. You mentioned it in your 1895 issue, but it's something we still to discuss today. The title is, should every Kappa wear a badge? The first two sentences read, every Kappa should be the owner of a badge. It is the outward link which binds us together as a fraternity. And if that link is missing, the beauty of the whole chain is impaired. The question was posed in a letter sent about the upcoming convention, and they plan to discuss making the purchase of a badge compulsory. And so then also, as you mentioned, they talked about the uniformity of the badge. But of course, the debate includes members who leave after just one term, what is affordable to most, etc. And I do appreciate a recent Kansas graduate's thought, she's a recent graduate in 1896, that we cannot all afford to wear diamonds. And if it comes to a mere childish matter of how much our key costs, if the perfectly plain badge does not mean as much to one as that which is ablaze with jewels, we are not fit to wear a key at all. Many also argue that we should be wearing our keys at all times. The editors note that to have four responses to the same question is unprecedented, but the arguments put forth are not satisfactory. So they told them. My favorite is the example of two equally loyal members at Cornell. One bought three pins in order to have one on each of her dresses. And then the other said that she so much disliked a badge of any sort that she could not persuade herself to wear the key but they argue both of these members are equally loyal. And get excited, there's a notice for the 13th National Convention in Evanston, Illinois. Um, the program is listed as lasting from Tuesday, August 25th until Tuesday, September 1st. So seven days. 
And that brings me to the October 1896 issue, which opens with a review of that lengthy convention. And I was so excited, but then I was not so excited. They described the entire convention in seven or eight pages, so pretty long, but they simply keep saying a reception was given and it was declared a resounding success. We entered the business session and really got down to work. The storytelling is is really lacking. It's not nearly as exciting as it has been for previous conventions. They're not talking about the crazy meals that are being served. And then the editors then go on to complain that once again, the Constitution was tinkered with, much to their dismay. They suggest that experience has taught us that it is an excellent document by which to live. Then why change it? It is one of those cases where the old is better. And they clearly are not officers who recognize when work can be hindered by a constitution or how work can be improved by changes to the constitution. And a later editorial notes that there was a larger number of alumni present owing probably to the location, Chicago, or as you say, the other Illinois, which is easiest to get to, um, as well as the general increased activity of alumni which also might help explain the end of honorary memberships that that took place at this convention. Honorary memberships were set up in earlier years to help the fraternity gain some much needed acclaim from alumna members when there were so few who had already graduated from membership. And that ended in 1896 because very few saw the benefit when we already now have so many of our own notable alumni. So that was an interesting change. I did get a kick out of a poem that was submitted by Upsilon Chapter. This will be our poetry episode. And they quickly state that it was not published for literary merit. It basically describes any meeting I have attended that requires travel and mingling in groups. So allow me to read it to you. Oh, the weeping. Oh, the wailing. Oh, the drip of briny tears. Oh, the sobbing. Oh, the moaning through the endless change of years. Tis the voices of those marshals who have long since gone their ways from the toils that oft oppressed them in those old convention days. In those days, when all their duties lay in meeting delegates, piloting perplexed maidens guided to them by the fates, maids who knew they'd lost their baggage, knew their trunks had gone astray. Was there not some way to find them? Was there not some place to stay? Where would be the place of meeting? Was there a laundry in the town? Was the council sure to be there? Would they need a party gown? These questions that perplexed her made the marshal's hair turn gray, made her think the world a desert, made her long to flee away. To some quiet spot and lonely where janitors had naught to say, where announcements ceased to vex her, where there were no bills to pay. But these woes are soon forgotten, memories only will remain, of the love grown ever stronger, firm and constant, still the same. And as swift the years pass onward, dear and dearer still shall be memories of convention sessions and the girls of KKG. So they pretty much could have summed up the entire convention with that poem. Later, Beta Delta reported in the chapter letters that their member, Miss Belle Brewster, is a member of a musical group that sounds an awful lot like what would later become known as the Kappa Pickers, a sort of country style musical group. 
1896, they write of one member playing the banjo, another the guitar, and they spend their evenings practicing home ballads and plantation songs, which later we can discuss the appropriation here. But their success is noted, and they even dined with the Prince of Wales while they were traveling abroad. So quite the musical accomplishments for that group of women. Again, I wonder if uh, Florence from St. Lawrence would be impressed by these musical accomplishments, because maybe they write their own songs. Who knows? The Parthenon and exchanges have lots of discussion about class politics and the politics on campus. So women are definitely becoming much more active in student life, in the student body, enough so that their sway because of fraternity membership is actually being questioned. People are wondering if it's fair um, for them to, to have this sway. And then the end of the issue includes a contest that the best manuscript submitted to the key will earn the writer a jeweled Kappa Kappa Gamma pin, and the best chapter letter will earn the writer a jeweled chapter letter guard. So we debate the key, we debate whether people should have them, whether we like having everyone have them, whatever, uh, and then we use it as an award. So um, we'll have to see what the letters in the 1897 and 1898 issues are like to see who won for the best, the best manuscript and letter that they submitted. And that's about it. That's the excitement of 1896. You've been listening to Key Matters, brought to you by Kappa Kappa Gamma, with generous support from the Kappa Kappa Gamma Foundation. Our headquarters is in Columbus, Ohio. Our house museum, the Stewart House, is in Monmouth, Illinois. You can find us online at kappa.org, or you can peruse our digital archives at kappa.historyit.com. Research and production is done by the director of the Stewart House Museum and member of Alpha Deuteron Chapter at Monmouth College, Dr. Mary Osborne and me, Kylie Smith, from Omicron Deuteron Chapter at Simpson College, and the Archivist and Museum Director for Kappa Kappa Gamma. Thank you.